from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why embracing systemic change is key to sustainability, why the world's smartest minds are tackling smart irrigation, the power of moderates to effect environmental change, and do sustainability tools actually work? If we had a hammer, this week on 350. It's March 23rd, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me here in Oakland in Green Biz Studio, right next to me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Heather, it's so good to see you in person. It's great to be out here and to be looking at all these lovely buildings in downtown Oakland. I don't know the city very well and I'm getting to know it and it's uh, quite a lovely place. I will use that word. I, I love the the great diversity of people walking around this downtown area and near the convention center where I know that we will be having our Verge 18 conference. And you will notice, I bet, that not one of the buildings you're looking at has any snow whatsoever. <laughs> yes, it, I am, uh, I guess, three for three. Uh, the three times I've left New Jersey this uh, winter, I have precipitated a nor'easter. So my husband's getting hammered with all sorts of snow, and I am here in lovely Oakland just dealing with rain, which is lovely which we desperately need. Um, it, it's really great to have you here. We don't get to see you enough. I talk to you all the time, of course, but to have you here, not just to work with me and with the editorial team, but to work with the Green Biz team. We had some, some really good meetings the last few days, and it's, it's, it's really always so gratifying to uh, see how well integrated we're, we are and becoming even more so. What, what, what was your, any highlights of the week here? So what, one of the things I'm trying to get my arms around is linking and connecting our editorial coverage and the mission on GreenBiz better to the the conference missions, right? So we have GreenBiz, the GreenBiz event, right, that we do every year. And we, we've been tremendously uh, thorough with how we, we cover the issues that, that are handled there. But Verge is undergoing an amazing reorganization and transformation and aligning our editorial coverage to the themes, the energy theme, the transportation theme, the circular economy theme is, is my mission. And I'm excited that we have all these great collaborators and, and co-conspirators coming in place to, to help uh, adapt our coverage. So that's what I was here doing and stay tuned for lots of fun. Yeah, and I don't know how much we've talked about sort of what we're doing with Verge. Uh, we, uh, we've only started talking about it publicly a little bit. We discussed this at the Green Biz Forum in February in Phoenix, but we're, we're transforming our, our Verge conference, the one in Oakland in the middle of October, which is uh, about technology and sustainability, the convergence of the two and how they, that accelerates sustainability solutions in a climate and resource-constrained world. One of the things we're doing is is, is creating three concurrent conferences under one roof within the Verge event. So there'll be Verge Energy, Verge Transport, and Verge Circular, which is kind of cool. It's about circular economy and all the technologies and enabling things to, you know, advance, from advanced materials all the way through reverse logistics and bringing things back and getting them back into shape or into raw materials and, and back into creating value. So... 
uh, how we do that and how we align the company around that uh, is, is, is an interesting exercise. Yeah, so we've got great, like I said, a great editorial team coming into place. Katie Fernbacher's out at a conference right as we were speaking, um, gathering ideas for stories and for the uh, sessions at the event. So I'm just, I'm energized, um, spending some time with some companies down the valley uh, this week and just getting a better sense of what they're doing. Um, on the technology fronts, because that's my baby. That's my uh, background. I love linking technology to business model change and, and opportunity. Well, lots more opportunity to come, but let's for now go to the Week in Review. So, Heather, I don't think I got through Thursday without wishing you a happy World Water Day, but March 22nd, as always, is the annual observance of World Water Day, which is used to advocate for the sustainable management of freshwater resources. And uh, there are a bunch of uh, events that took place uh, under the auspices um, of the United Nations this past week. And um, we wrote about uh, Sunberg Capital piece coming up that you did, Heather, later in, in, in the program. But um, yeah, water is uh, continues to be one of those issues that we can't talk about enough, and yet there's not enough being done about ensuring fresh water for the world's citizens. Yeah, so I spent some time this week editing pieces from our contributors, uh, some, like Will Sarney. He's got a take on, on stewardship and where that needs to go from a corporate level. But I also wondered about certain uh, market segments that have been bubbling up for some time, like smart irrigation. Spent a moment uh, uh, talking to a very unusual proponent of that, and it's uh, TJ Rogers. He was the co-founder of uh, Cypress Semiconductor, and it turns out he is now the executive chairman of a company called Waterbit. And he uh, got into this segment because he's a He's a winemaker, and he wanted to use technology, because he's a technologist and electrical engineer, to help um, automate how water is delivered to the the vines and so forth. So uh, he is part of this company. It's about three years old, and he actually has intellectual property that he contributed to it. And what makes this this company a little bit different is that they use the sensors, right, to of course, track how much water is in the soil and and what might be needed by the vines, but they also use that information to then automate when it gets irrigated. So rather than on a timer, when the soil hits a certain uh, dehydration level or moisture level, that's when water is applied. And um, so we'll, we'll be having a segment a little bit later, but I spent some time talking to him about his idea of the internet of plants, right? So he talks about the internet of things, but he, he truly, and this is a concept that is rising up, uh, bubbling up, if you will, way of way of, of making the agricultural segment more tapped into the, the knowledge basis um, that we have about plant, plant methodologies and, and when things should be watered. So he has spent more than 10 years actually working on in his own vineyards using some of these technology concepts uh, so he, he had some great perspective on this Internet of Plants concept. You'll hear about that later, as well as why it's been taking so long, right? So this this concept has been talked about for quite a while, but you know farmers, and rightly so, are pretty conservative um, about what they're doing in their fields. And what I what I especially enjoyed about uh, my conversation with him is he reminded me of this great guy. I, I think you might have met him as well at Greenbiz, Dwayne Roth, um, and he. Dwayne is a farmer from Kansas. Um, he 
came to Green Biz 18 this year, and he is so passionate about water conservation. He is a third generation Western Kansas farmer. He's part, he's farm taps the Ogallala Aquifer, which is one of the biggest aquifers in the United States. It supplies about one fifth of the, the wheat, corn, cotton, and cattle production, right? Um, and it runs right down the middle of the U.S. Yeah, it, it does. And it is drying up faster than anyone possibly realized. And, and Dwayne um, is so passionate about how this gets stopped. Um, and, and anyway, his passion um, and uh, the passion of T.J. Rogers were so similar. It was great. Uh, it was really wonderful talking to, to both of them because they believe so is Waterbit sort of a play on Fitbit? Is that the idea that you're getting some kind of device with real-time information? Where does that name come from? It, you know, I didn't even ask them about the name, but it, it's a great, I mean, bit, obviously, because it's information that's coming from, through technology. But, but it is a, the fitness of a plant. It is, it is really getting a sense of, of the fitness of the soil, of re- whether there's a condition. And, it, and it, gets very, it gets down to the, the custom and pers- it gets personal, if you will. I mean, it's not this general um, algorithm that you that you trust it is your field your plants your farm your vineyard your garden whatever it is so waterbit is is rising up there's also dozens of other companies and and we feature some of them in this uh in this article some some that have been around for a while some of which are brand new yeah, and, and the issues, the challenges that these companies are facing are one of the reasons that so much attention is being paid to this. One of the reasons is it has to do with an article that we ran this week by Eric Davies, who's uh, an associate director at BSR, um, about um, you know the, the risks that companies, particularly this focuses on China, still have in their supply chains around the companies that are that are still leaking uh, toxic materials into their into local water supplies and the need to shut down plants along the way and and how do, how do you deal with that and and talks about how uh, Dell and BSR convened a group of stakeholders at a roundtable in China uh, back in November to look at some of these issues and uh, to understand uh, you know first of all some of the key risks that need to be managed within supply chains and then how do you do that uh, how do you create a growing movement of companies and uh, international initiatives that are specifically targeting water resource management as a key component of supply chain sustainability. I mean, this is this is going to be <laughs> a growing issue as, as more and more places become water stressed, uh, even in the developing, developed as well as the developing world uh, here in the United States, as well as in you know, Bangladesh and, and China and other places, uh, you know, how you operate, even if you're not an intensive water user, even if you're not building chip fabrication, you know, facilities where you're just using millions and millions and millions of gallons of water, even if you're just a sort of a basic business, particularly small manufacturer or something using normal amounts of water, it still could be hard. Or if you want to build an office building, for that matter, uh, building uh, in water stressed areas is going to be a risk that companies face in terms of can they build it, they have the right to operate, and then how do they operate in those areas to make sure that the meager water supplies uh, remain uh, potable. Yeah, and it's, it's the, in this case of the electronics supply chain, it has a lot to do with the discharge, you know, the stuff that's being actually put into the, the watersheds. And um, since China is really stepping up its environmental um, compliance requirements, 
these companies are moving uh, to get ahead of that, or maybe not ahead of that, at least in step with that. We, we mentioned before brands, Apple, Dell, Ericsson, Foxconn, they're all actively working on mapping the path of discharge to understand where, it, where it's going. I mean, to, to me, this is kind of an evolution of the great work that some of these companies have done with electronic waste and trying to figure out how to, to it's, it's, it's related, right? But also, I mean, Apple is, is not surprising. They're, they're one of the ones um, trying to help these same companies and factories become more energy efficient and using clean energy. So very much uh, an evolving issue. Um, it has to be because, I mean, I think World Water Day is 25 years old now or something like that. And um, it's just the, the rate of progress is too slow. Well, let's move over from that topic to a political one, which is uh, brings up a piece that Christine Arena, who's a longtime communications uh, uh, consultant and strategist in the world of sustainability and corporate responsibility, uh, wrote a piece called Why Moderates, Not Liberals, Are Environmentalism's Tipping Point. And basically talks about the fact that, that even though things like climate change uh, from a policy perspective are being driven by the extremes, by the, the, the extreme left and extreme right, that the power for change is actually in the middle. Uh, she talks about uh, research from um, a group called Third Way, says moderates represent more than a third of all American voters, uh, and that the dissenters of the left-white paradigm, paradigm skew young, educated, and diverse. And this is, uh, this is the future. This is where the, the, the political change is going to come from. Moderates, she says, are a crucial audience for the environmental movement because they see many sides of complex issues and actively seek compromise. And, and I think that's your, uh, your key sentence there because that's obviously what so much of, of, of what's needed. So really interesting, provocative piece. Yeah, so it, for me, it comes down to the, you know, the compromise, but the open-mindedness to be able to to see those those viewpoints. And I, I, I got to be honest with you, I'm getting so turned off by the polarization. Either I, it's just not productive, and so I love this because um, this is where the rubber meets the road, and and actually things that can happen. The term is kitchen table conversations, right? Because this is where you <laughs> you do talk at the Thanksgiving table. You have these political debates and. Being able to have a, a an open-minded, passionate in a different way, passionate that, that there needs to be a solution, I think is 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 where I want to come come to. Yeah, and we're seeing some interesting efforts. There's something called the Environmental Voter Project that's run, I think, out of out of. Uh, uh, Northeast New Hampshire, I want to say, uh, we're looking at how do you mobilize, actually there's some 10 or 20 million Americans who uh, consider themselves environmentally minded who did not vote in the last election. And, uh, you know, in a, in a world of, of razor thin margins, how do you activate them to, you know, be voting, whether it's, uh, whether they're one issue candidates or more likely multiple issue candidates, but at least to bring their environmental awareness and sensitivity and political clout to the voting booth. And so I think that what Christine's talking about here is is the way of the future, and it offers a glimmer of hope that we can get through this, albeit it may take three or four election cycles, and the question is how many do we, you know, how, how long can we wait uh, to, to, you know, get some kind of, of, of movement here. But 
you know, the American political system being what it is uh, and, you know, could come crashing down at, <laughs> even while we're uh, taping this podcast. So who knows what's going on? Um, and, and, you know, and, and of course, that same is true around the world, that those moderate voters who often are not the ones certainly making headlines, um, but still can be making waves. So the final thing we want to talk about this week uh, is a great piece from our longtime contributor, Alan Atkinson. Um, do sustainability tools work? How would we know? And I love this piece because I get pitched on so many tools. Um, and but by, by the way, so many really valuable um, data tools and um, management tools and engagement tools and so forth. And and part of the um, the thesis of this article is number one that yeah, people love to have a tool to do this job. You know, we, we, we want to have a construct uh, around which we can organize action or a plan or a strategy or, or a way to measure these things. And that's important. But, and this is the thesis that I, that I particularly resonated with me, is how do you measure? How do you know whether these things are really going to work? Um, and Alan talks about a tool that he, he has started working on called Accelerator. I, I don't know much about it. You, you probably have a good, better concept on that. But but you know how how do we really know if they worked? Would we have done this without it? Would we would it have been better perhaps to use an existing management system to do this? So it I don't I'm not saying I'm not suggesting and I don't think he is that we shouldn't see these tools in place. But I think it's it's more of a what are you using kind of a reality check on on how you're actually implementing some of the ideas that you have as a as a sustainability team. Yeah, and it's always great when someone questions the status quo and questions you know what we're all seemingly doing kind of blindly, and, and, and Alan Atkinson is really uh, great for doing that. Um, and he asked the questions, he says, uh, when has one of our tools made the crucial difference between something happening or not happening, becoming more sustainable or not? And to be honest, he says, I can't say. You can never rerun a project minus the use of certain tools, et cetera, and see whether the results end up better or worse. And and so the question is, you know, is it worth, uh, is this trip necessary in terms of all these tools? We see this uh, when we go around the room at, at, at meetings of the GreenBiz Executive Network and we talk about the kinds of tools uh, that companies are using to uh, to do reporting or to, to produce the data for their reports. And some of them have sophisticated, you know, uh, uh, cloud-based, uh, you know, software as a service kinds of things. A lot of them are using uh, Excel. A lot of them are using, you know, Google spreadsheets. Uh, a lot of them are using sort of really basic tools. And who's to say? I don't think anyone's done any metrics on you know, are the folks using Excel reporting, you know, better or worse than the folks using sophisticated and expensive, uh, you know, platforms. Um, and I think that it's really great to, to sort of take a look at this and, and, and just question, you know, bring the question forward is, you know, how do we know whether these are working? And, but I think in the thesis and the, the final analysis, the fact that these things exist around an, a field or a, a, a task associated with this field is, does give it more credibility. And that's that for me. You know, Alec, Alan writes, we know with some certainty that the use of sustainability tools, whether they support training, planning, analysis, strategy, or reporting, enriches the pool of information and experience, and it's available to decision makers and change agents. So your ability to say, hey, look, you know, maybe use this as a way of talking to people that are not necessarily in your camp and to convince them, um, it gives you a, a, a better informed decision and a better argument for that, for those skeptics. Yeah, so check that out, weigh in. He asked for, pe- for people to weigh in on what t- 
tools they're using and are they working and a few people have so we'd love it if you would jump in take a look at that story TJ Rogers is best known for his role in co-founding Cypress Semiconductor back in the early 1980s. As you might imagine, given his background, Rogers holds numerous patents related to microprocessor design. After all, he is an electrical engineer. He is also credited, however, with numerous inventions that apply specifically to irrigation approaches that he has used for years on his own vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California. Those developments are now part of a system being sold by Waterbit, a technology startup that uses solar-powered sensors to automate irrigation schedules. Rogers is the executive chairman of the three-year-old startup, which is based in San Jose, California. I spoke with him at length for a smart irrigation article that I published for World Water Day, and I'm sharing two portions of that interview in this episode of Green Biz 350. In this first clip, Rogers describes what he likes to call the Internet of Plants. In the same way that in the Internet of Things, humans aren't attached to the Internet, and if you don't carry your cell phone with you, you can go wherever you want, and the Internet doesn't know where you are. Um, in the same way, the, the plants would be connected to the Internet, but the things that would be connected are soil water monitoring, so the dirt that the plant's in, and its condition, uh, its, its wetness condition would be known, which is obviously a critical parameter for plants. And then the plant's water supply, which could be a sprinkler in a vineyard, it would be drip irrigation, et cetera. The plant's water supply is connected to valves that are controlled by the Internet. So a typical plant in the Internet of plants would, in effect, have its status of the root water sent to the Internet, the Internet would make calculations on that relative to what it should be, and then it would go back and know what valve that plant was um, connected to or being what, plant, what valve watered that plant, and it would um, turn on that valve uh, for a calculated amount of time if that plant needed water. So that, that's, that's the, the, the connection. It, it's, uh, there is no physical connection. Although I tell you, if I could get a monitor, which I've been trying to get for years and I haven't found yet, if I could get a monitor that somewhat like a blood pressure cuff would go on a plant and tell me the water status of that plant reliably, then I would use that signal from the plant itself to control the water to the plant. The tech sector and the ag sector have been talking about smart irrigation approaches for decades, but adoption is still pretty low. In this second highlight from our interview, Rogers describes what it will take to get farmers more engaged. Even though he's a technophile, it took him quite a long time. So this is a cautionary tale for why even though growth in this sector is accelerating, it will take persistence and patience to reach the tipping point where the Internet of Plants becomes just another part of the farm management process. I'm, I'm, uh, I would describe myself as a hyper-quick adopter. Uh, but I have three vineyards. Uh, we sell wine every year, and the vineyards are expensive, and we need the revenue from the wine in order to uh, pay the bills. And when I turned on the automated watering system in my own vineyard, um, I turned it on for two years without connecting 
the input to the output, that is, without letting the computer do the watering. So what I did was I watched the water in the ground myself, which I can do on a, just by going on the website and looking at the graph of it. And then when, then when my normal watering method said to water, my normal watering method is called leaf water potential. You actually measure the pressure required to push water out of a plant, which is a very accurate way of knowing uh, the water status of the plant. Then when my, my leaf water potential said to water, then I looked at my graph and I saw what the volumetric water content, the percent water was in the soil, and then I turned on the watering manually. And after two years of watching it, it became clear to me that I could just as easily control the watering by looking at the water in the ground as opposed to the leaf water potential. Leaf water potential is an expensive and awkward way to measure plants. I didn't care because I wanted perfection of the growth of the grapes. And I had three guys full time who did that. And you only can do it a couple hours a day. It only works between noon and two o'clock in the afternoon if you want to do it right. So you have to have more than one guy. If you have three vineyards, you have to have three guys to, to measure it. So the reason it was slow for me, even though I'm a quick adopter, is that I'm also a farmer, and farmers are very conservative. And you're, they're going to, you know, a typical sales cycle will be they'll talk to you one year and get a feeling for what's going on, and maybe they'll go to some other vineyard or some other we, we do fields as well. We do row crops. We do orchards. There are a bunch of places. They'll go to a, a, some sort of farm that makes what they make, and they'll look at it, and they'll go, okay, well, maybe this gizmo isn't just science fiction. Maybe, maybe it can really help. The next year, they'll say, okay, put one in my vineyard, and that might cost them a couple thousand dollars, and they will be able to look at the water out in their favorite field, right out in the middle of the field. It can be miles away because this long-range radius has got a five-mile radius. So they can look at, they can be out in the boondocks and get it, and they can plug into the Internet and look at the data. So they watch it for a year, and then all of a sudden they see, yeah, the curves go up when it rains, the curves go up when I water, the curves go down. Uh, it takes them about a week to go down. So I get it. I can see how much water's in the ground. And if I had more probes, an array of probes, and I could look at water across a lot of land. And because the probes tell me the water at depths of 6, 12, 18, 24, 30, and 36 inches, I can also look down and see water, if there's a deep water there or shallow water, et cetera. So that's year two. They put in maybe some more probes, and they put it in in one field, but they still manual, manually water. And then just like me, in year three, they say, okay, in my field that I've got, I can measure water in, I'll, I'll tell the company to turn on the loop, and then I'll set my trigger for what, what the water level in the ground has got to be to water, what I, I already know is right. So in year three, they'll take one acre and they'll do automatic water. And then in year four, they'll call us up and say, you know, that worked real well, and I want to do a 20-acre trial. So give me the same stuff that's in my one-acre plot on a 20-acre production field, and I'll do that this year. So I just described four years for people that are uh, farm conservative, which I am when I'm a farmer, uh, to get into something that's so radically different from the current way of doing business.
one of the people I had the pleasure of running into at the Globe Forum in Vancouver last week was Sally Uren, uh, who is the chief CEO of Forum for the Future. Sally did a really fascinating uh, talk on embracing systemic change. And, and Sally, first of all, great to see you. Great to see you too, Joel. Tell me why systemic change has become one of the focuses for Forum of the Future and why that's so important right now. Systemic change is really important for us because our diagnosis is that actually without transforming the systems we rely on, we aren't going to be able to deliver the sustainable development goals. And tinkering around the edges, band-aiding solutions isn't enough. We need whole-scale transformational change. I love this idea that uh, a couple of things you said. One is that you can't have a, a sustainable system in an unsustainable, unsustainable world or unsustainable society or unsustainable yeah value chain. Uh, talk about how you're working when, in value chains to try and create that kind of systemic change. Uh, sure, yeah, we have a couple of projects where we're trying to mainstream sustainability into entire value chains. We're trying to do that with cotton, so we have a project looking at mainstreaming sustainable cotton, then also in the tea industry, as in the beverage tea. And our approach really is to understand in both of those value chains, where are the points of leverage that would drive systemic transformational change in those systems? And that often takes you to market mechanisms, actually how the system really operates. Also that lever of consumer demand, and then also issues around traceability and transparency. So we have a three simple stages. So diagnose, so where are those levers of transformational change? Then we, second stage, create pioneering practice around those levers. And then the hard bit is scaling that change because the system around us, around the change we're trying to create, has got inbuilt energy in it that will keep it as it is. And so you have to understand that and then think about the interventions in a way that start to harness any dynamism in any system, any energy, but to get that dynamism energy flowing in a different direction. And market levers are really, really great at doing that. I would imagine that one key prerequisite is, is that the system wants to change. How do you determine whether change is even possible within a given system? That's a really good question. Most systems don't want to change, actually, because status quo was working pretty well for most people. Um, so therefore, you have to create the need for change. And that's why at Forum, we use futures tools and techniques a lot. It's very hard sometimes in 2018 to appreciate that we need whole-scale transformational change because actually the world around us, in, in many respects, is working well for a lot of us, particularly here in developed nations. However, fast forward 2030, 2040, put yourself, put your business in those future possible worlds. And in some scenarios, you might not even exist. And so looking to the future to experience step one on our six-step change curve, experience that need for change is critical. So that's the first step of creating that coalition of the willing, if you will, that will then come together to transform the system. And then, of course, you've got to get the right players in the room. I imagine that in some parts of a system that there are, that there are some that are very willing and some that are very resistant. Can you give an example, maybe in cotton or one of their tea or one of the others, where you've had to sort of you, had, you started off with part of the system, but you then needed to bring in a part that maybe was resistant. Yeah, I, I mean, that's symptomatic of any change process. Um, and that's why once you've experienced the need for change, 
the next step is to create that shared vision um, and that's how you can bring people along so to create that sense of there is something better out there that can benefit us all and that yes I can continue with my own strategy but actually if I join this particular collaboration then not only will my strategy flourish but it will flourish even even more so and there are difficult conversations um, getting the system in the room can sometimes be really uncomfortable as I said earlier, there are elements of all systems that are very happy with the status quo and therefore very resistant to change. But creating that shared sense of vision and within that building trust, these processes that we use at Forum, they're timely and they require a lot of personal engagement. And that's a critical ingredient of any of these change process. One of the things I love that you said in there was that the closer you get to changing a system, the more the system pushes back. Uh, I get that at, at many levels in, in, in the world and in my business and in my life. Talk about a, a, the, some of the system pushing back at you and, and Forum for the Future and how you got moved through that. Yeah, it's hard and sometimes you don't move through it first time. Uh, we've had projects that we've got to a certain point and we've had to just mothball them because the energy in the system was so strong. So knowing when is the right time to carry on is important. So knowing when to give up temporarily and just regroup is really important. But then I would say that what's critical is resilience. Um, yeah, it might not work on a certain day, but actually you know that it will work, so you just go back. Um, and in my case, being threatened with prison was a little bit alarming, but I thought, well, they're really seriously not liking what I'm saying, so therefore it must be right, so I'm just going to keep going. Um, so you've got to, there's a bit of the kind of mischievousness in you as well, but timing is everything. Um, and if it doesn't work, I think what, the, who was the... Um, great poet that said you know, if you try try again and if you and then eventually you will succeed yeah. well uh, i love the optimism the enthusiasm and the, the spirit of, of systemic change and, and and we need a lot more of that and thank you for bringing that to the world and for, for demonstrating how it can work and for showing you know at least one good workable model for how to make that uh, happen uh, sally uran uh, is the ceo of forum for the future it's great to see you sally yeah great to see you too joel People love to obsess over the weather, and when it comes to forecasts and historical information, IBM owns one of the most massive databases in existence. Its weather company group, which it bought about three years ago, produces an average of 15 billion predictions daily. That's with a B. What exactly is it doing with that information? How can that data help businesses? I recently caught up with Lloyd Trinish, an IBM Distinguished Engineer, who leads the company's research in environmental sciences. Here are highlights from that interview. Just to start us off, IBM has been amassing research on weather and weather patterns for years. And that investment really accelerated when you acquired the weather company back in October 2015. So how are cities and businesses using that data in real-world applications? Well, there's actually a number of um, those types of applications. One, and it's sort of uh, timely uh, in the sense that um, some of our earliest work uh, was looking at 
the impacts of weather on the operation of electric utilities, and specifically um, uh, the notion of being able to predict storm-driven outages. And this has been um, something that we've had uh, an issue with that, uh, for example, in the northeast uh, U.S. over the last several weeks. I've also um, experienced it myself. I'm in southeastern uh, New York State. I had uh, two outages from the first two nor'easters, one that lasted four hours and the second one lasted four days. And one of the things that is important here is not just the collection of the weather data. Um, well, if you didn't do that and you didn't do weather prediction, you sort of, you know, you can't address the business problem. But once you've done that, if there's collection of of data about weather impacts, then you can start to put these pieces together. And in terms of this particular example, you know, that means information from the utilities about um, where did the outages occur, what kind of damage happened, sort of uh, it's where and when, what kind of restoration effort um, was applied. And the way we put these together is a a notion of, of what we pioneered here called coupled models. So the idea is that you predict the weather, and that's, that's through physics-based modeling, based on our scientific understanding of how weather occurs, how storms form. And then um, we couple that to a machine-learned um, model that looks at the impacts. And so this is, is an application of uh, AI uh, methods uh, to do that. And uh, and this is where we bring in the historical weather data, but then we also bring in the historical, you know, impact or damage or outage data. And the idea is that um, we then can build relationships between them, and then we can then predict, you know, not just the storms, but what do the storms do. So how does the, you know, how does that information help the utility? Is it just, is it simply that, they know exactly where the outages are and can triage them better? Or what, what, what is it that's um, well, different? Yeah, yeah what, it, what it allows the utilities to do is to become proactive. So what usually happens is that um, the, you'd, you would uh, see the storm coming, you'd make some assessment about the weather saying, oh, this storm is like the one that was last week or the one that was last February 12th or something of that sort. And, and then make some qualitative uh, judgment about uh, what's the response. In this case, you be, you're becoming quantitative. You're able to determine you know, that the storm will uh, result in this many customers coming out and also to be able to assign the probability of the, those number of customers or I need this many crews to do the restoration. And that's known ahead of time. And if it's known ahead of time, then you can begin to pre-stage people and equipment. If the storm is of significant uh, magnitude, a lot of utilities have a mutual aid pact and that they would request resources from their neighboring utilities or sometimes the utilities are maybe states, several states away, and they can uh, uh, request that. So it's all about being proactive and ready for the storm, not waiting for the storm to occur and then assess and get resources after that. So this does a couple of things. One, it um, can uh, reduce costs. It um, will reduce the fines that utilities can have by when the power goes out. They increase customer satisfaction. And there can be other cost elements. If the, if the event is uh, a, a large one, many utilities have a, an emergency command center. 
And that could be an expensive proposition, like a million-dollar proposition to open. So you want to open it when you need it. You also um, want to make sure that, that it's um, not opened you know, um, uh, as a false alarm. So there are definitely um, customer relations and economic uh, advantages of, of doing that. And this work, one way this work got accelerated with the weather company acquisition is it moved from uh, research, you know, prototype test beds to a commercial offering. So many, many uh, techies, uh, including me, (laughs) point to cloud computing as a tremendous resource when it comes to taking action um, and and, uh, developing plans that will address climate change, what other technologies will be instrumental in, in really enabling solutions? Well, one aspect of that is I, I would say it's a combination of it's not just the technology. There's also elements of science here as well. You know, why we you know, do understand uh, the climate date uh, well, there's a lot more work that needs to be done so that we can understand it even better. And then also to determine effective, uh, you know, mitigation strategies. So there's a couple things that we've been doing along those lines. One, on on the basic research, one aspect of this is um, IBM actually trying to help uh, academic uh, research problems uh, along these lines. After um, the Trump administration decided to draw from the Paris Agreement, I, one of the things what IBM did was when they you know, reiterated um, our corporate commitment to those agreements, we set out a call for proposals for climate-related research from the academic community uh, to leverage the world community grid. And in addition, uh, we provided, uh, as part of that call, not only did we provide access to the computing capacity, but we also provided access to data from the weather company and storage uh, from our cloud computing uh, resources. And the response was, well, we were um, impressed and overwhelmed. We received over interest from over 70 academic groups about putting together proposals. And, um, and they, the proposals are still in the, we're in the final stages of evaluating the proposals, but they all looked at very interesting climate-related problems from impacts of, um, of climate change on human health to some of the some fundamental questions about, you know, how uh, clouds uh, uh, retain heat in the um, in the atmosphere, and uh, which have an impact on the reliability of climate models. We may be underestimating some of uh, the heating effects uh, of uh, with uh, particulates in the atmosphere, as an example. There were proposals that looked at the impact of climate change on wildlife migration, and a, and a number of others. So that's. That's one aspect. Another aspect is some of the work that uh, we're doing here at our labs, which is looking at trying to evaluate the effectiveness of mitigation strategies. So many organizations, as you know, have or have proposed you know, certain strategies to mitigate the impacts of climate change. So an example, you know, since you, you know, earlier you mentioned about cities, you know, the, we know of cities that are... Uh, want to um, introduce uh, changes to uh, building codes. So, for example, painting roofs white or making the roofs all green and uh, with the ideas that that would reduce the um, carbon footprint but also could reduce the impacts of heat waves, uh, uh, for example. 
But then the question you might want to ask these policymakers is, how do you know that will be effective? And the typical answer is, well, they really don't, or the uncertainty associated with that is quite large. And so one of the areas of research that we've been looking at is essentially to look at climate projections on a much more local scale, you know, a scale that could start to be useful for a, um, for a city government, as, as an example. But then more importantly is to be able to sort of tease out sort of two contributions to, um, to let's say, if you're trying to reduce uh, uh, heat waves, because that, that will have such a uh, large impact on um, energy usage, you know, and on the livability of the city. Well, one element, you know, would be the warming through greenhouse gas emissions. You know, at a local scale within a city, you can help by reducing your overall footprint, but but you're not going to be able to change what's occurring on a global level uh, because those emissions have, have already led to uh, 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 warming. But then another contribution to heat waves would be the urbanization. So if you've heard of the urban heat island effect, that's where the 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 buildings um, and the activity in the city interact with the weather and contribute to higher temperatures. You know, that you could make adjustments to, you know, based on policy. And if you look at the, you know, in some cities, depending on where you are, more of that contribution to the heat waves is coming from the urbanization. So that you could, you could, you know, determine the, what advantage of the mitigation strategies would be. In some other cities, most of the contribution may be coming from global warming itself. And then, you know, your changes in policies may not make much of a difference. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can reach us by email. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back here for another edition next week of GreenBiz 350. Heather, sadly, will be back in New Jersey. But until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. 